0: so i am an absolute skeptic that we are going to replace the vast majority of people with machines anytime soon i think that right now we are very very good at automating tasks we're not necessarily good at automating jobs nor should we even necessarily be trying to
1: welcome to the conversations on applied ai podcast where justin grammans and the team at emerging technologies north talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at appliedai.mn. Enjoy.
2: All right, welcome everybody to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today we have Josh Cutler, Lead AI Platforms and Transformation Team at Optum. If you aren't aware, Optum is a health services and innovation company on a mission to help people live healthier lives and make the health system work better for everyone by connecting systems across 150 countries. Josh is also a serial entrepreneur and co-founder at multiple startups like Deep Machine and Ramble. And Josh, I also just recently learned that you attended Duke University, studying a PhD in philosophy and a focus on machine learning and social science. That uh, sounds fascinating. I'm curious to know more how these studies have had an impact on your thinking related to COVID-19, obviously, and the current climate we're in. So. Sure, we'll cover that later in the podcast. So, thanks, Josh. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. Awesome. Well, cool. I mean, I, I gave a little bit of an intro there about you, but I, I'm curious to know maybe if you could fill in a little bit of the trajectory of your career and basically, most recently, I guess, what you've been up to in the field of uh, artificial intelligence.
0: Sure, sure. So like you said, I've been at an Optum and a lot of the work that I focus on right now is is how do we scale up adoption of AI at a company our size you have people doing it in myriad different ways, right? Pockets of people who are focusing on, you know, clinical innovations or claims innovations, just all of the various things that take place in the healthcare space. And and what my team's focus on is saying, all right, well how how can we scale this up with unified tooling, make it easy for people to access the data, use the latest and greatest. This space is so dynamic and moving so quickly, particularly in the the, the document processing world. So that's everything from computer vision to look at things like faxes, to natural language processing, making sense of clinical notes. Um, We're really, really moving quickly there. and, And my team's mission is to make it easy for us as a company to take advantage of those innovations as they happen.
2: Nice, nice. So it fits very much along with it, sort of applying all these new technologies to real-world business use cases.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. A lot of my experience in the past is my startups is saying, all right, we have these cool innovations technically. How is this actually useful? <laughs> and, 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 and that last step has been just the, the death blow for so many AI technology companies, and, and frankly, just AI technologies, even if you're not building a company out of it. It's very easy to make that, that novel toy use case, but when it comes to taking things and actually you know, making them valuable and making them useful at scale—like that's been the trick, I think, for everybody.
2: How would you define AI? I guess do you, do you have a, a short synopsis that you use when somebody outside the field asks you? Or so
0: I, I guess I have two definitions. Uh, one of them is kind of tongue in cheek, but probably more accurate. And then one of them uh, is is the one I I probably use more often. So I think AI has is a somewhat malleable definition, and it typically uh, encompasses things that we currently think of as hard to do with computers and like anything that falls into that bucket we we've called AI historically mm-hmm. whether it was you know playing games that we've now completely solved automatic uh, speech recognition which we're making huge strides in things like uh, image recognition which used to be a very difficult problem and now we're seeing in many cases this as a solved problem but to in kind of layman's terms when i'm talking to like my business friends who are trying to figure out all right how do i make sense of how to use something like this it's how can we help computers make good decisions right and in the simplest case right our thermostat is kind of a stupid form of ai right it's going to take the current temperature and then make a decision about whether or not to turn on our hvac Mm -hmm. so anytime we're building systems where computers are going to make decisions that is you know at some level a form of artificial intelligence in my opinion and now there's there's tons of different approaches. Some of them are very data-driven, some of them are very rules-driven. Used to call those expert systems. And, and so there's kind of a full spectrum of approaches for how you would tackle that sort of thing.
2: Nice, cool. Very good. I You mentioned about largely solved problems. I guess I'd like to dig a little bit more deeper on that. Why, why do you think some of these problems are becoming largely solved in, in some ways?
0: Uh, So I think it's a a couple of things,
2: right? Some of them are very amenable to
0: some of the things that have happened recently, both from an algorithmic perspective, it can, like the availability of cheap and scalable compute perspective, and then just data sets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of the problems that we're still wrestling with may be solvable when we have better and larger data sets. They just don't exist. There haven't been business reasons to create them. But if you think about what's happened in the past, I don't know, five, 10 years, a number of deep learning type techniques are now really feasible in ways that they weren't, both from a data availability and a compute availability perspective. And that's where we've seen, I think, the most dramatic gains and problems that we used to think of as somewhat intractable.
2: Nice. All right. Yeah, makes, that makes a ton of sense. So how, how did you get into the field? You did a PhD at Duke and stuff like that. You, you were already sort of in this world of deep learning, machine learning, going back years. Is that fair assessment?
0: Well, kind of. Yeah. My
2: my path has been very meandering.
0: So, <laughs> was, as an undergraduate, I, I studied math, computer science. I'd been programming my whole life. I started as a kid, like so many, hmm. wanted to make video games. So I got into it. I think my the first things I built was I would I would take those choose your own adventure books and I would type them in in Basic and just use go to statements so I could do it that way instead of turning pages. But where that manifested for me was being really interested in gaming. I just, all right, well, how do you make games work? It's cool to render graphics on the screen, but Mm -hmm. if you don't have opponents that are smart, then you don't really have a game. And so I, in undergraduate, spent a lot of time just thinking about kind of algorithmic approaches, you know, pathfinding, A-star, that type of stuff, just so I could make games. Mm -hmm. But I'd always had an interest in politics. So right out of undergraduate, I went to Duke, and I was pursuing a PhD in political science. And what is interesting about political science at the graduate level is it can become very quantitative, which is different than most people's undergraduate political science uh, mm-hmm. experiences. And so that's where I really got into statistical learning, statistical inference, and started thinking about well, what, what are predictable phenomena? And I mean, this is a whole discipline. That's what most of my peers who are now professors are now doing, whether it's predicting election outcomes or interstate conflict, these types of things.
2: Yeah, I was, I was thinking of Nate Silver, I guess. He's probably yeah. he probably read a lot of his stuff.
0: Yeah, precisely. So Nate Silver is probably the most famous example of someone who uses data and statistics to predict political phenomenon. Although there are are many, many others who Mm -hmm. just don't, don't have quite the notoriety. And so I, uh, I did that for a couple of years, I quit a- ABD and went to Microsoft. So I moved to Seattle and worked in uh, a research group out there called Live Labs. And our, our function was to try and commercialize the work that was coming out of Microsoft Research. So there I was typically taking things like um, entity recognition modules that had been developed by others and saying, all right, how do we put these into products? Uh, so we built some prototypes of things that died, but would look like OneNote on the internet. But, but what if you could automatically annotate a bunch of content that you'd put in there using natural language recognition? And then that kind of started my startup journey where I did not do a ton of data work, but
2: What was the time frame you're talking here?
0: So when I got there, we had just released Vista.
2: So it would have been <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, right around then and uh, I was out there for about three years. So Microsoft was I mean, in some ways they were kind of, would you say they were ahead of it? I mean, were they kind of ahead of Google in some of these, in in some of this aspect, you think? Uh,
0: So Microsoft Research as a research institution is one of the, I'd say, foremost and has been historically just in terms of publications and doing this type of work. I think where we struggled at the time and still to some extent do is getting those into the products, right? Mm. There were so many cool demos that that die because they just, they don't make sense to necessarily get into a product. And I, I think that's just it's it's really hard right yeah. some of the things did turn into amazing products like connect right which is all computer vision but many didn't
2: yeah i, I have to kind of think about the powerpoint paperclip or whatever right I mean, yes, those, yeah, those, I those, those are always the things that people would love would laugh at Wait, why why is this thing talking to me a paperclip you know and the work that went into building that per se
0: and, but the thing is on paper like if you do it right and you could identify when people were getting frustrated trying to do things it sounds like a good idea but that's when the rubber hits the road <laughs> it, it was not sure sure sure
2: so you're you're in uh seattle yeah and it's, it's very interesting that there's this research group it, it almost feels like sort of that bridge between academia you know it might have felt similar to that i guess in some ways where you were doing research in academia then but then you actually have the means to apply it to a, a product sounds like an interesting role
0: yeah and that was explicitly our our mandate to try and do this because so much had died uh, on the vine mm-hmm. prior to that in, in the research world um, ultimately our lab was shut down okay. and so I, I ended up moving back to the twin Cities. At this point, uh, worked, got kind of got into the rails community, started just understanding what it meant to build web apps because that really wasn't what we were doing at Microsoft. And uh, built a, startup actually with my wife. It was a company called Zissel. Um, It ended up being one of the larger sports card communities online. And what that was, was A, just scratched an itch when my parents gave me my baseball cards back and I had no (laughs) idea how to organize or assess them. But B, it was a playground where we collected a lot of data. All of our data was assembled by our users, right? Uh. So they were scanning images of their cards. They were correcting the metadata around them because Uh, The reality is for things that people stopped manufacturing in 1890, like there is not necessarily good data about (laughs) that. Right, right, right. And what that was was an opportunity to start then applying some of these data skills again. So one of the things that we did was we built uh, predictive pricing algorithms. Uh, In the collectible space, people really want to know, you know, what's my collection worth? What are these things worth? And for rarer items that don't have a lot of volume at auction, like you have to build statistical models. You can't just say, oh, yeah, you know, 10 of those sold yesterday, and that's what they sold for. Right. So invested in a, a bunch of time in that. Uh, and then that's really where I got my feet wet with computer vision to start saying, all right, well, here's a picture of a, a Joe Maurer baseball card. Do I really have to have someone come in and tag this as being Minnesota Twins, or can we just recognize the logo and say this is a Minnesota Twins card?
2: Sweet. huh? Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, so it basically taking, you know, my the thought came back to me. I, I wonder if you ever did the same thing with comics. It's, it's the same thing. I've, I've got a whole shelves and shelves of comics that I'm trying to evaluate at some point. Oh, yeah. And you're right, the human cost of somebody to go through and analyze all these things. Why, why not have a machine do it? And I, I think back to what you said earlier, you know, like, how, how can we have... Machines do things and teach them to do things, because uh, they're really good at uh, scanning through thousands of images, whereas humans aren't, right? We're tired, <laughs> we get bored exactly. quickly. We oftentimes make mistakes because of it. So, cool, so yeah, so you, you kind of did your first startup. Where, where, where did that end up going?
0: Uh, we ended up being acquired by one of the larger players in the space, uh, Beckett Media.
2: Cool, so so then you're, looking. okay, you got, you've got this itch for image recognition and, mm-hmm. and data. Is that sort of where Deep Machine came in?
0: Yeah. So it, exactly. So I, I was actually at Optum. I had been there about nine months, um, and I met up with my friends D- Dan Grigsby, and he was kind of mulling this space as well. Saw an opportunity here. We actually met at a book club, uh, uh, talking about you kind know, of what the impact of AI was going to be, and decided, all right, let's let's take a swing at this because it was at that weird moment where a lot of companies knew that there was something. For if, if, them there, if they could unlock the value of their data, they've been hearing, you know, data is the new oil for forever. So they were building data lakes, but they weren't getting anything out of it. They were just storing things. And and so what we wanted to do was say, all right, well, we can help you think about how to get value out of there. And then if you don't have the people, we can do it for you as well. And that was it turned into a kind of a machine learning consultancy
2: as you were talking about people you know hearing about the power of ai um i I was reading a a book recently i I forget the title or whatever but she was talking about ai going through a series of winters Mm -hmm. right basically these ai winters so you know people were talking about some of this stuff in the you know late 60s early 70s and you know i I don't know what your perspective is her feeling was every 10 years we sort of got in this winter where it was like people would pull back because they're like, I haven't seen the value in this yet. In a lot of ways, I've seen this with Internet of Things, Mm -hmm. where where I've done a lot of work in IoT. We're in explosive growth time right now. Do you see another winter on the horizon or some some pullback? Or is it just, has it been proven enough now where we've sort of crossed the chasm, I guess, into companies now willing to invest more and more in it? It's tough
0: to assess whether or not, you know, you see another full-blown winter like what people describe where people just kind of completely sour on this idea. But so much of that to me comes down to what are the expectations set around what uh, machine learning and AI can do for you. So my experience thus far has been that people are a little bit more tempered in their expectations. They, they know that there's something there, but they don't think it's going to completely change their business, despite what you might hear from some of the vendors' commercials. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are absolutely vendors out there like, oh, you know, we're going to revolutionize your business, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's probably not going to happen. Most of the folks that I've talked to, though, are, they know that, you know, there are some operational savings that could be achieved, right? Even if it just makes the existing folks they have more productive. And maybe there's some new experiences they could deliver, right? Now that they can... Think about something that would have just been way too expensive to go hire 100,000 people to look at images, but now they don't have to. My gut says that while we may reach a plateau right, where we're not necessarily advancing as quickly as we have over the past five or six years, I don't think people will be as put off by that because they seem to have more realistic expectations this time around.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I remember seeing commercials in the early 2000s, like when the internet really sort of took off or late 90s, early 2000s, where it was pretty much the solution for everything. And they were kind of pushing the envelope. I mean, they didn't call it 5G, but they were saying, you know, 100 gig downloads and hear this and that stuff. It's like, come on, really? I mean, so a lot of times what gets sold out in the marketplace is, is way, it's still is still futuristic and kind of you're trying to sort of temper that, I guess, bring that down to reality. But I think all of us probably are seeing some real world applications I guess I'll, I'll get to the brass tacks here on this because there's a lot of questions around how will this will replace humans. Mm-hmm. Do you have any like perspective on that, right? If we, if we don't have people reading, watching, looking at thousands of images, you know, uh, what are they gonna do instead? <laughs> and maybe that's, yeah. not, maybe that's not a good example, but it feels like as we're getting higher up the, the evolutionary chain, these computers are gonna be doing much more than reading images and analyzing them. They might even be able to, in the case of cancer and doctors, right? They, they might be able to spot things. Mm -hmm. that that, uh, that a human wouldn't. What's what's your feeling for for that with regards to AI and sort of the future of of people's employment?
0: So I am an absolute skeptic that we are going to replace the vast majority of people with machines anytime soon. I think that right now we are very, very good at automating tasks, right? Mm -hmm. We're not necessarily good at automating jobs, nor should we even necessarily be trying to. So what that means is that what your job looks like might change a little bit right? Because some of maybe the more boring and mundane tasks that you had to do are automated. But there's very few cases I've seen where realistically, we're even close to automating away a job. So uh, to some extent, we may just be eliminating some of the busy work for people, uh, making them more productive so that they can focus on the things that are uniquely human. Because when we think about what's rewarding about our jobs, it is very rarely the things that computers are good at anyway. The things that we are good at as humans are the things that we enjoy doing. Uh, So I'm I'm somewhat optimistic that it actually makes the workplace better for a lot of us.
2: I think a lot of people have that view that it's a complementary technology, I guess. It's not a full... Pick up and replace so it sounds like you're sort of in that camp that's right yeah so so you you had this consultancy and then you moved on to another startup with mitch Kupat, a fellow friend of both you and myself you guys were doing something in uh, speech right yes that's right so
0: i had a, a second interlude where i went back to duke same program was there for a few more years still didn't finish so i am abd <laughs> but, it, but I, I it did manifest as a textbook which i uh, just came out oh uh, exciting. i co-authored with a friend i uh, just came out in may here but yeah so I started a startup with uh, mitch cupid and brian bisbelow uh, it was called ramble what we were trying to do was take advantage of the breakthroughs in natural language understanding and conversational ai and say what could we do to make people more effective we knew that the opportunity was to eliminate note-taking because so much of uh, actually uh, more jobs than i realized before i went into it was writing down things that had happened mm. whether that was a doctor writing clinical notes or it was a sales rep just documenting the conversations that they had had and this is part of why i i really do believe that we're going to automate away the boring tasks Salespeople and doctors hate writing down notes. Right. They love talking to people. And so to the extent that you could automate that that note-taking, you allowed them to then do the things they enjoyed, which was talking to customers, talking to patients. So what we built with Ramble was a, a smart phone system for salespeople. We built out the telephony infrastructure. We built out a number of different things for analyzing conversations so that you could understand how well you were doing how well you were adhering to your sales playbook uh, and just give sales reps the tools to really quickly take what was interesting about their conversation and get it into their CRM
2: that's perfect that's perfect My dad's a doctor retired now and I but I whenever I find these these things with regards to Hey, look, they're automating your job away. He was a cancer doctor, so they're like mm-hmm. they, they're spotting cancer cells better than you could, Dad, because they have all this information. And you know, his his response back to me was, "Yeah, but they can never have that human touch, right? And so it can never really touch the patient, can never really sympathize with them, and that's a piece that will never be replaced. And I think you, you know, sales could apply in the same thing too, right? It's all about the relationship, isn't it? That's right. Absolutely. And to
0: some extent, it may cause us to introspect a little bit about what are the valuable parts of our job. And so in you know, that doctor's case, is it really staring at MRIs that is what makes them a doctor or is it communicating those things with their patient?
2: Yep, exactly. So bring us up to current day then. So you went to Optum at some point.
0: That's right. Yeah. So we ended up winding down Ramble after about a two and a half year run and made it to uh, Optum. I guess, I mean, the same organization that I was in last time, some new faces though, I was pretty excited about what they are trying to do and just some of the change I had seen since I was there last time and how hard they really leaned into the fact that when you have the scale that they've got and, and the data that they've got, we could really make healthcare better right? by being smarter. And so the opportunity just was was way too interesting. And honestly, there's a lot of areas that have good data, but I, I, I knew I didn't want to sell ads, right? <laughs> and you can go work at Facebook, you can go work at Google, but ultimately
2: you're selling ads. Uh, you're not making people healthier. So that was a big component for me. Sure. Well, it seems like Optum has picked up a lot of great talent here over the past uh, couple of years. And so I believe that it, part of it is the mission, right? It's like, yeah, you're not just doing AI for the sake of AI. It actually touches and impacts human lives. So it's a great, great thing to do.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it for me because there's a ton of places you could apply it. I mean, when I started, I wanted to go build video games and mm. nothing against building video games. I hope to do that as well. I do it in my spare time a little bit, but that's probably, at least for me, not the area that I'm going to feel like I'm having the most impact given what it feels like the world needs right now. Yeah.
2: So what's a what's a day in the life for you? What's a typical day if you if you could share that?
0: Yeah, so for me, it's probably not going to be what it would be typical for somebody coming up because I'm kind of I'm managing teams now, but I, I guess I can give a day in the life of both. So for for me right now, it's very much uh, two things. One, trying to collate all of the various needs of people across our organization, right? Because United Health Group is is huge. We have you know massive clinical networks. We have pharmacies, we have a bank, we have all of these various people who have different data requirements. And when you're building platforms that are going to serve them all, you really have to spend a lot of time with your customers. You can't just say, well, this is how I build models at deep machine. You all should do it this way. Mm. So that's a big part of, of what I do. Uh, and just building consensus, right? Because all of the various business leaders could choose to not use the platforms that I build. That's kind of one of the things I really appreciate is the stuff I work on is not uh <laughs> delivered via fiat or decree i actually have to convince everyone that it's valuable so i spend most of my day doing that now uh, for folks that use our platforms that train models mm-hmm. i would say it's it's very much like what you're—you're going to hear the same story everywhere else. It is probably 80% of their time is talking to uh, the people who have generated the data, whether it is claims data or clinical data or what IoT data to just understand what they're even looking at, and try and understand what were these sensors reading, or you know what was used to translate this fax into text, so they can understand you know what the the bias in the data might be, what the errors they're looking at are, you know, what whether or not their dependent variables actually represent what they think, and then once they've got a handle on that and they really understand what is the problem that they're setting out to solve right because frequently when you work with with product or business teams that haven't done a lot of ai they're not going to give you a predict this variable right like that that's that's never how the problem is presented Um, but ultimately if you're going to turn it into a machine learning problem you need to translate the business problem into okay well if I could predict what, would you be able to solve your business problem better? Mm. So there's a lot of that. It's a lot of just understanding the businesses themselves. And when I say businesses, I mean either what's happening, you know, with that unit in, in the pharmacy or, or whatever, to understand like what things that are predictable help them. And then there's probably, you know, twenty percent of your time is
2: doing those predictions. Mm. Which is the fun part. I have just sort of a lot of it is gathering requirements and data cleaning in, in some ways. And then the fun part is really getting the output, right?
0: It is for some. I, it, I think it depends, right? Yeah.
2: I actually, I really enjoy
0: the helping people understand hmm. what machine learning even is, um, and helping them formulate that. Okay, well, if you could predict this, would you be able to run your business more efficiently? But maybe that's just because I I love learning about how business operate. <laughs> like I, I feel like every one of these engagements, I'm like, oh man, I didn't realize that's how that worked at all. Okay, tell me more
2: yeah it's 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 interesting to see especially when you can apply technology that people haven't seen before just to see their eyes light up right when it when it actually works there's a lot of satisfaction there do you get a sense sometimes you guys run into things where it's like yeah this is great and then you start doing the analysis or trying to pull the data in and you just have to say we can't go any farther
0: absolutely yeah and so this is something i i I learned the hard way doing deep machine but it's i i think you should always structure your projects around a very cheap, what we, I call a signal project. And basically, is there signaling the data? Can you predict the thing that you would like to predict given the data you have on hand? Uh, because if the answer is no, then there's no reason for us to invest a ton of time and energy here. Sure. Doing that, uh, that to me is the MVP of a data project right so like we we like to think about mvps in the software world all the time like what is the minimal viable thing to test that this is actually there's some there there uh we frequently skip that step when doing data analysis and i think it's super important because otherwise you may invest a ton of time where you just you the data you have may not be correlated to the outcome that you care about just because of they're truly
2: not or because there was some problem with data collection or for for whatever reason yeah yeah for sure have you seen things that you've put I mean, maybe I've not been there long enough, or, or what? But have you seen things that have been shelved for a while, and then you come back a certain time later, where you can pick it back up again, and be like, "Hey, let's 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 take a second stab at that." Or do these things sometimes die, and they're done?
0: <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that I have seen an example of that yet. But I've only been at Optum for about a year, so I do have an example of one that uh, I I actually bump into uh, time and time again. So it seems obvious, I think, to a lot of people that sentiment. On phone calls, should be predictive of all sorts of things. Uh, and I was com- convinced for sure that it would be,, uh, especially in the sales world, I was like, oh, yeah, if people are if sentiment is high, you you must be more likely to be closing a sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and a- after spending quite a bit of time with it, it they're just it's not particularly well correlated. People are grumpy or happy and it has more to do with whether or not they were stuck in traffic and way less to do with whether or not they're going to close a deal, especially in the B2B world uh, and not the consumer buying world. And it took me quite a while to convince myself that that was true. And now I've seen it in a couple of different instances.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, sometimes the humans come into the thing with bias already. so to the problem, you know what I mean? So as, as a human, I can manage and say, of course, these things will line up. And that that's, that's fascinating. I mean, and, and it also is a sort of a, a mind bend to people to finally accept the data for what it is, because we have emotions and we just think, of course, but you know, like you say, it can take some time for you to finally convince yourself that these things aren't correlated. Yeah, exactly. So do, do you have any, you know, advice or, you know, like classes that people take or conferences, I guess, you know, if so, if I was a students or changing careers for example or whatever and I, I find this stuff fascinating do you have any recommendations I guess that somebody might might want to explore
0: yeah so I think there's there's kind of two backgrounds I typically uh, bump into this. so there's the I'm a software developer and want to learn about machine learning hmm. uh, and I think if that's the case there's there's a number of good resources I really think that for folks who want to get into deep learning the fast AI courses are probably the right place to start. There's just a ton of great content out there. Their, their tooling is good. Um, so I, I highly encourage most folks to check that out. I think for people who do not have a programming background, I actually recommend that they start there. You absolutely can go do a data science bootcamp and learn to run regression models and things, but I think that people will then, they're just setting themselves up if they wanna get into this field professionally to run into some blockers down the road where they realize that, oh, I, there's still some computer science things I need to understand.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I guess uh, since you're overseeing a team there at Optimin, mean, wh- where do you guys pull your talent from? You know, I may mean, ask you, you guys like looking at at master's level people do you, you guys hire people just sort of across the board? You bring in interns? It's a full spectrum, right?
0: There's needs for people ranging from the PhD level all the way down to undergraduates. It, it really depends on what you've studied. So there are now data science programs, right, offered at the undergraduate level. If you were a statistics major some of the words are different but the concepts are mm-hmm. the exact same segueing into machine learning uh, so it really just depends i think that most teams benefit from having a, a full spectrum of folks ranging from the senior person who's been doing it for a while down to people who are fresh out of school because they probably are up to date on what is the latest and greatest in many ways that people have been doing it for a long time may not be
2: yeah yeah good point and I, i'm wondering a little bit more about just uh maybe the soft skills of the job you know you, mm-hmm. you hear about this concept of storytelling and, and stuff like that it, it seems to me like maybe there's the hardcore statistics people and then there's probably a range then you get out to people that maybe didn't major in a stem related thing but yet they're just really good at writing they're really good at. they're very articulate and they can sort of mm-hmm. talk, talk to the to the c-suite about this it seems like there's a bunch of different skill sets that are involved in this whole area
0: Absolutely. So I actually think that the person you're describing there is the one that is rarest thus far uh, in my experience in industry. Uh, Someone who can communicate, I would say, both to the technical and non-technical audience about the opportunities that machine learning in particular, but just AI generally present. If you are dangerous enough that you actually can speak to a technical audience, but mm-hmm. but can also translate that. I, th- I think that now is your moment, career wise. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure, embrace it.
2: Well, how how uh, how would people want to reach out and connect with you?
0: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, uh, Josh underscore Cutler. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm happy to chat. I've I've worked with a number of folks who just have reached out and said, "Hey, how can I get started?" The the course I taught at Duke uh, was. For social scientists who wanted to get into programming and machine learning. So, we've got a bunch of content um, that I can share as well with anybody who's interested.
2: Cool. Now I, I mentioned at the beginning COVID, and so we I've <laughs> I've since alluded to that topic. But I I am I am curious with the current state that we're in right now. How how are you looking at it? How is how is healthcare in general? Sort of your your perspective looking at this? How is AI being applied as far as what what you know? I see a lot of articles, of course, in in the news. But you know I, how how are you guys approaching it as a health data company?
0: It's a great question. This is one of those instances where you really need to say, okay, well, what are things that I could predict that would allow me to have any sort of agency to help, hmm. right? So hmm. things that you could imagine are would be really useful are knowing where uh, the next outbreaks are going to be, where high-risk areas are. Now, that's only useful if you can do something about it, right? So you say, okay, well... If we think there's going to be outbreaks in areas x, Y, and Z, can we make sure that they're prepared from a ventilator perspective uh, in these types of things? I don't I can't speak to work that uh, is being done or using AI in the vaccine generation space, but I know that that is a uh, fertile area for pharmacy companies just doing modeling uh, of these things without actually having to create them. So I imagine that that's probably a very hot area as well
2: yeah i have seen some websites obviously there's a bunch of websites that have different models of this set and the other thing and I, you know i don't know which one it was in particular but there was like a dozen different sliders and the moment you adjusted one thing or the other you know basically the r value changed from this to that you know so it's more contagious there's more higher population then the models just completely changed right and yeah. so it, it feels like there's just so many variables here that it's almost uh, well that's what they're doing they're basically running like rerunning the models on an daily basis because you have so many variables going on is that is that fair to say
0: well to some extent
2: you have to right so a lot of those uh websites you see
0: with sliders are saying well if this is true then you'll see this outcome uh well we don't need to think about what all of the possible outcomes are because we actually have covid and we can measure what the r is (laughs) like like (laughs) we we should be updating it and saying okay well this is what's actually true right yeah now we, we want to model you know what would happen if contagion levels went up things like that so that we can make sure that we're taking proper precautions but you, you do kind of have to update these things uh with high frequency because the truth on the ground is changing
2: yeah what's interesting about this and maybe it'll play out over time i mean if we have a, a full curve of the way COVID behaves could we do you think use that come the next wave or the next you know virus because it feels like right now we're in a in a state where we just we're, we have never seen this before so it's hard for us to pull in historical data do you think that's true or, or is there is there actually a data out there that i think we can point to and say well eh, we can take a big enough guess here or we're relatively confident even though it's not covid we believe that it typically behaves this way is that kind of what you're doing
0: so, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I, I, I am hesitant to speculate uh, on how much this looks like previous things. Yeah. Uh, so, this is an area where I'm actually very critical of our discipline. And by that, I mean just kind of statisticians and, and machine learning folks who, who wade into things that are actually really well-studied areas and like, aha, but you don't know about deep learning. <laughs> well, you might not need to know about deep learning. And I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to that too because uh, being trained in the social sciences, y- you you frequently will have like some physicists who are like, ah, elections are trivial to to model. You just need to use you know this set of differential equations that I've imagined. Like, well, there have been people studying elections for hundreds of years at this point. yeah, It's not quite that simple. If it was, they would have already done it.
2: (laughs) Right, right, for sure. Well, great. Are there any other topics that
0: you want to share with our listeners? I don't think so. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk uh, about kind of how I got where I am and just what I think is happening because I think we're at a pretty exciting moment. While a lot has happened in the past, I'd say, five, 10 years just because of The adoption of deep learning. Um, I think we're right now on the cusp of actually getting these things into the hands of people manifested in products. So I think it's pretty exciting.
2: Very cool. Well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate the time. And as always, I guess, uh, continue to help and shape uh, healthcare for all of us. And I'm I'm sure we'll be in, in contact in the future. All right. Thank you.
1: You've listened to another episode of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at AppliedAI.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. Please don't hesitate to reach out to Justin at AppliedAI.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.